Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi, and my guest today is Eric Jennings, author of Imperial Heights, Dalat and the Making and Undoing of French Indochina. The book was published by the University of California Press in 2011. Hi there, Eric. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi, and my guest today is Eric Jennings, author of Imperial Heights, Dalat, and the Making and Undoing of French Indochina. The book was published by the University of California Press in 2011. Hi there, Eric. Hi, Roxanne. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you. Um, perhaps you could get us started by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself, how you came to the study of, of France, and a, and a focus on French Indochina in particular. Sure. I um, began my academic career as an undergraduate at the University of Toronto and moved on to the University of California at Berkeley. And I knew I wanted to work in, in French history and French colonial history in particular, which I became interested in uh, as an undergraduate. I, I have a bit of a complicated life history insofar as I'm I was born in the U.S., um, immigrated to Canada when I was quite young, and my mother's French, so I hold multiple passports, and I've long had an interest in things French colonial. So for those listeners, Eric, who might not be familiar with the history of Indochina, now Vietnam, could you give us a, a very brief overview, and I know this is a challenge, um, but, but of French involvement there, just so we have kind of a thumbnail sketch of the context that, that you're working in? Sure. I mean, my story really begins in the 1880s, but the, the story of French Indochina goes back to the earlier part of the 19th century and involves uh, really a history of French involvement on the pretense or the grounds of going in to protect uh, Vietnamese Catholics and French missionaries operating mm-hmm. in Indochina. And what makes Indochina a little bit different from many French colonies is that it is uh, the colonial project of several regimes, if you will. Um, so really in essence, that of of the Second Empire, but going back earlier than that, and of course, later than that as well. So it sort of transcends epochs in a way that other French colonial uh, holdings do not. Um, So really, my story begins under the Third Republic, but one one can, of course, go further back in time with French Indochina. Mm -hmm. Um, It only really becomes called French Indochina near the end of the 19th century. And part of my project here is is really about making Indochina possible, not not so much as a spatial concept, but as a as a settler colony, which was the dream of uh, Governor Paul Dumer in the in late nineteenth century. In the introduction to the book, um, you describe the project as, and I'm quoting you here, a historian's equivalent of a thick description of colonial era Dalat. So I, I have a few questions. Um, one, if you could just situate us even geographically where Dalat is. Mm-hmm. But also, what what does that mean to you, this idea of a thick description? So beginning with Dalat itself, um, it's located in the in the sort of hinterland of, of Saigon or modern day Ho Chi Minh City uh, in the mountains. And that's absolutely critical. It was a hill station. I call it the sort of French colonial version of of Aspen or Davos or Chambéry. Um, And it really is a kind of microcosm of France Indochina, but it's also a dystopian or utopian project that involved sort of cloning France in Indochina and really making life possible for colonials. Um, It was believed that the lowlands in particular were uh, inappropriate for the settlement of women and children, and it was hoped by uh, Dalat's colonial planners that uh, Dalat would enable the sort of perpetuating of French colonialism in Indochina. As for the thick description, I really didn't have sort of, um, obviously it's an anthropological term, but what I had in mind here is, is tackling many different themes through a single place. And so I used a lot to get at issues of colonial violence, to get at questions of place, um, to get at questions of medicine. Uh, I really tackle in the first part of the book issues of, of colonial vulnerability, which is a little bit counterintuitive because so much of the book is about colonial uh, domination and power. My first book was, um, well, really derived from my dissertation dealing with the Vichy regime in French colonies. And then my second book was called Curing the Colonizers, and it grappled with this kind of empire of spas and the furloughs that French colonials were allowed to take uh, home 
so as to sort of regenerate and, and as the French would say, se ressourcer um, back home in the, in the motherland. And really, this project emerged from both of those. Insofar as I was already struck at how many telegrams were in, were emanating not from Hanoi, the seat of power, but from Dalat in the 1940s. And I thought this is bizarre. You know, what's the governor general doing in Dalat in 1942? Um, and the answer, of course, is that it was a kind of pinnacle of power and a, a safe haven for the French colonials at a time when when the Japanese had invested the colony. As for the second book, um, really, this grew out of the empire of spas in an odd way. I was looking at sites of leisure and power and medical sites where um, French administrators in particular uh, could could go and and uh, um, regenerate, it was believed, right, so that they could go on, on regular furloughs. And of all the sites that I looked at in curing the colonizers, all, all of those sites were, were hydromineral spas, so places where they would take the waters. So this is for soldiers, officers, administrators. Dalat was sort of recurring in that literature, but it was the anomaly because it was dry, so to speak. It was a, a highland resort rather than a spa. And in that sense, it was part of a different story, which is the story of these hill stations that people like Dane Kennedy have so wonderfully looked at for the, the British uh, uh, India case for the Raj. Um, and so it really fit into a different kind of body of literature. Um, the French at Dalat were looking over their shoulder at what the Americans were doing in the Philippines, what the British were doing in India and Pakistan, and in, in what would become Sri Lanka, then Ceylon, what the Dutch were doing in what would become Indonesia. Mm-hmm. One of the things that struck me in the introduction to the book when you talk about uh, you know, doing the research for this project is that you were really accessing um, previously unexplored archival material and sources. And I, I was wondering if you could say a little bit about that. There are some interesting archival stories here. You're, you're quite right to suggest that a lot of the archival material was difficult to access. Um, and so, you know, you have this very bizarre situation with Indochina archives of part of them being in Aix-en-Provence and mm-hmm. part of them being on location in Vietnam. And it's almost haphazard. One gets the sense that the French were busy throwing cartons into boats as Jin Bien Phu occurred. So, you know, files one through five of a certain series may well be in Hanoi and then six through ten in Aix-en-Provence. And... Um, there, there's very little way of knowing going into it what is where. Quite a bit of time was was taken just staking out where the Résidence Supérieure d'Anam holdings were, um, and very few researchers had actually had actually worked in them prior to the 1990s, certainly. Um, and and they themselves have sort of moved around. So this was partly a great deal of detective work was involved. The Résidence mm-hmm. Supérieure d'Anam or the the holdings for the central part of Indochina where Dalat was located, and therefore it was critical that I get hold of them to do the sort of close detailed work that I wanted to reading municipal council records, medical reports, projects about how to make the hill station a reality, road links, rail links, all of this stuff was located at the time in Ho Chi Minh City. And now, interestingly, it's all come full circle and it's housed in Dalat proper. Yeah, it's a wonderful um, research story in, in some sense, you know, your your discovery of this material, but also the the well, I guess, repatriation of, of that archival material to the place that, that you're working on. Yeah, it's full circle. So, um, Eric, you argue throughout the, the book that the story of Dalat, you know, is a kind of microcosm of the broader history of French colonialism um, in the Indo-Chinese context um, and tells us things about the history of the French Empire more broadly. Um, but you also say that, you know, Dalat is very unique in the way that it encapsulates the colonial era. Um, and I'm just wondering if you could say a little bit about the way that this particular story of this specific site complicates or shows the limits of some of these perhaps more extreme versions or interpretations of the colonial past, the way that the, that imperialism improved some of these contexts on the one hand versus readings of the colonial past in terms of, of violence and, and even genocide. Yes, I sort of stake out in the introduction what I what I take to be a bit of, a bit of a middle ground. Insofar as I reject both hegemonic interpretations and sort of you know neo-colonial nostalgic interpretations. So on the hegemonic front, I do think that there's quite a bit of literature that sort of looks teleologically at French Indochina, perhaps looking at the ultimate triumph of the Indochinese Communist Party, uh, and refers to or or at least alludes to a French colonialism that is at once unchanging and monolithic. Um, and and I make the claim that that 
French power was actually in many ways a response to fears of fragility. So fears of the tropics themselves, fears of their inhabitants, um, and a realization that the French were dying in droves in the late 19th century of disease. Um, and so very, you know, this, this project, which hinges on imperial power, paradoxically at its core has a sort of uh, a verring and an averral of, of weakness. Um, on the flip side of things, uh, yes, I mean, I, I obviously want to steer clear from the kind of, of nostalgia that permeates a lot of work on Indochina. I just had my students look at the film Indochine by mm-hmm. Richard Farnier, which is suffused with this sort of, of nostalgia, this kind of vague colonial haze, if you will. And here I'm quite intent on showing that Dalat was, of course, built, this, this colonial dystopia or utopia was built on the back of forced laborers, prisoners, um, that colonials were carried up the mountain quite literally on human backs to go for their rest and reinvigoration. Um, so that Dalat was in many ways a murderous project. And I mm-hmm. describe in some detail the murderous rampage of a certain Victor Adrien de Bay, who, whose goal it is to, to find a, an appropriate site for a hill station and who employs the most brutal uh, tactics imaginable to, uh, quote unquote, discover the site. So I do plead for a kind of middle ground, but mostly, you know, I, I argue that we can use theory here as a kind of toolkit and that no single monolithic framework is necessary to view French Indochina. The the place is is you know Dalat is is wonderfully complicated you know it's a site of segregation but in the 1920s and 30s the Vietnamese bourgeoisie is starting to appear there so you know it's segregated by class of course by race to some extent the French dream would have it but a lot of fissures are emerging in the place by the 20s and 30s. The other thing that I find really compelling about the book is the way that you kind of move between this project of of writing a a global history that has implications for how we understand imperialism more broadly and French imperialism specifically, um, but also this very local uh, context. And I I wonder if you could say something about how you move between these spaces and levels of analysis in the book and the connections between that local and the kind of more global project here. Well, that, that's something that I, I think is interesting. The, the scientists, some of the scientists, people like, um, uh, Dr. Vassal, um, people like Alexandre Yersin, who are at the origin of, um, Dalat as a hill station, uh, were busy sort of measuring altitude and safeness and healthfulness. Um, and of course, all of this was sort of aggregated and coalesced in a colonial formula having to do with, with height and safety. Um, and that bar, that yardstick of safety in the tropics, as was imagined by late 19th century scientists, was very much part of an international debate so that these scientists are comparing, you know, altitude, humidity levels, precipitation um, to the work that Germans, Americans, uh, Belgians, Portuguese, Brazilians are undertaking in their spaces. And there is really a rich international dialogue. To give you one example, um, Dalat as a solution to French Indochina's health woes was preceded by another uh, pipe dream, which was sending uh, sick French colonials in Indochina to Yokohama in Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was very much the, the penultimate solution to um, Indochina's um, uh, health uh, catastrophe, if you will, from a French standpoint. Um, but of course, the, the governor general found that this was basically costing a fortune, that his coffers were bleeding money, sending colonials as far as Yokohama, which was coded as a salubrious European space, interestingly. Um, uh, Japan was sort of imagined here as proto-European. And and therefore, the call went up to try to create a site that was just like this in Indochina to at once save money, um, but but kind of replicate what these international scientists have been finding in other places. So Dalat is constantly compared to places like Shimla, Otakamund in India, but also places like Petropolis in Brazil, um, or as I said earlier, for that matter, places in Europe and, and North America. The book is certainly loaded, Eric, with these fascinating stories, you know, first of the founding and the sort of exchange of these scientific and medical knowledge about um, the positive effects of altitude, about the concerns over disease and uh, the military implications of all of these things. And you mentioned uh, a few moments ago this, this uh, perhaps one of the most disturbing stories in the book is the story of this Victor Adrien Debay. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about Debay and his crimes and what his story reveals about the founding of Delat and the broader issues of colonial violence and, and military uh, 
justice and injustice in this context? Sure. So uh, Victor Adrien de Bay was one of several scientists who were sort of in their starting blocks around the turn of the 20th century. Um, and this was part of a race that had been started by Governor Paul Dumer to find an appropriate site uh, for a hill station for Indochina that would once again allow Europeans to find rest and reinvigoration part of the year, especially during the hot season, although it's always hot to some extent in Vietnam, um, that it would allow them to find an escape within the colony and not require the trip home. So um, several scientists and explorers were involved in this quest. Um, and certainly Dr. Yersin was pushing for uh, Dalat uh, for a variety of reasons as, as his site on the Langbyang Plateau, what would become Dalat on the Langbyang Plateau. Um, however, another uh, adventurer come scientist by the name of Victor Adrien de Bay uh, was looking in the hinterland of, of uh, Da Nang modern-day Danang, then known as Turan, uh, for an appropriate site. So um, he had a series of criteria that scientists and the governor general had given him as far as altitude, re required altitude were concerned, um, you know, ventilation by breezes and so on and so forth. And he undertook this mission um, to try to find an, an appropriate site. He goes about doing this with terrifying violence. He abducts elders, he abducts villagers uh, in an effort to gain information on um, the most appropriate place in, in the mountains um, uh, of central Vietnam. And um, I make the case that, that this sort of colonial brutality is um, once again... Uh, uh, that, that Victor Adrien de Bay, sorry, invokes... Um, um, questions of, of altitude and, and mostly of, of climate to justify his own brutality. But there's also a kind of Debe method. He sets about um, intimidating elders, um, insisting on prestation. He, in other words, uses the colonial system from within to reach his mm -hmm. end. Uh, at the end of the day, there's there's probably a dozen people that he murders in his quest for this colonial utopia. An investigation is started, um, and of course, this is you know this is in the wake of the, the Dreyfus affair. There's other colonial scandals going on, and the colonial administration tries to sweep it under the carpet. Very tellingly, it's decided that the matter cannot be tried in um, uh, that the matter cannot be tried um, in in uh, France because people would not understand it. Uh, but then again, it couldn't be tried in Indochina either because um, their people were were too complicit in the matter. So it gets it gets hushed up, and at the end of the day, Victor Adrien de Beg ends up with a slap on the wrist and uh, ends up with the Legion of Honor. Um, it's really startling that turn right. in the story. My basic point is that these sites of leisure really are. Um, in some instances, built on the most terrifying forms of violence, um, a kind of very, um, you know, unmodern violence because his his brutality involves essentially punching and kicking um, Vietnamese people. And I make the case that this is kind of an extreme form of the kind of routine everyday violence that you would see in French Indochina, um, the kicking of coolies, the kicking of rickshaw drivers, and so on, taken to extreme lengths. You know, at the beginning of the story seems to come out of, you know, the sort of military and medical concerns. But then you go on to show the way, uh, you, I think you refer to it as a, a common conviction of salubrity uh, shared by not only the military, but eventual tourists, administrators, writers. How does this idea of, you know, health and salubrity um, figure in, in, in why Dalat is so important as a, as a colonial site and, and what the real agenda, if there is one, uh, is in the founding of, of this site and its development? Well, I ask at several points whether this is a kind of pretext, whether Dalat is, is um, whether science and medicine are, are pretext to create a kind of segregated space where the French can thrive far from the Vietnamese um, and explicitly set up a kind of site of power in a highland minority zone um, where they could, in a sense, counter uh, ethnic Vietnamese power. Um, that may be part of the story, but I, I think that that would be um, minimizing some of the colonial anxieties that I described in the first part of the book. So, you know, the, the kind of literature that colonials would read before the passage over would involve tales of, you know, spiders, malarias, uh, menace from below, menace from above. Nobody quite knew where malaria came from before 1898. The threat seemed to be everywhere. And 
there was a great deal of sort of colonial edginess here um, as well. So, you know, there is a common linguistic and discursive and cultural register here around climate. Climate isn't just the shorthand, but it also is. Um, but climate helped um, sort of synthesize a great many French anxieties about Indochina. And if you could resolve the question of climate by setting up really a, a replica of France in the highlands, then it was thought by French colonial planners and governors general that uh, a, a great deal of, of the risk of Indochina could be removed. And so, you know, literally, um, you have these charts comparing Indochina's weather to that of other colonies, but then Dalat's climate with that of, you know, Provence, Bretagne, Massif Central, and so on and so forth. I, I even found a chart that, that sort of made the argument that the differential in temperature between uh, Dalat and the motherland was similar to that between Shimla and its motherland. Mm -hmm. So, there's a kind of obsession with charting um, these uh, these climatic curves. And none other than Marguerite Durand, I argue, um, buys into this notion of Dalat as a kind of racial reinvigorator, right? Arguing that Hélène Lagonelle, one of the characters in, in, uh, in, in her Indochina trilogy, is whitened by the effects of, of Dalat. You, I just want to ask you a little bit more about that, this idea of this notion of Dalat as a France substitute, and, and, and I think you refer to it as the quintessential anti-colony. So could you say a little bit more about how and why Dalat was shaped in the image of of the metropole France and, you know, how successful uh, this cloning project was. And, you know, at the, in, in, in the end, you talk about it being a, a, a failed site in terms of its mission to, to make Indochina safe. Sure. Well, it's at once a very centralized dream and a very directive dream. Unlike, you know, British colonial health stations in India, this involved decrees from the governor general, huge emprunts or, or loans taken out to build the, the railway. And um, a great deal of planning. So you've got Paul Champoudry's very first plan from 1906. He's an incredible character who gets way, who gets essentially um, thrown out of a Paris municipal uh, election and ends up in as the first European mayor of Dalat, which is a town that doesn't even exist. <laughs> so there's a, a kind of dystopian dimension to the planning at work here. Dalat exists as a city on paper while it's still three houses on the ground. Um, and uh, a great deal of planning, a great deal of, of um, scheming is involved then in conceiving of Dalat, which remains something of a pipe dream until the First World War, when it really takes off because uh, the Great War, of course, largely severs naval relations with the motherland. And here, colonials really do need a kind of home substitute if they're going to be in the colony for four years. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, there's this kind of interesting disjuncture between these lofty ideals, creating a railroad ex nihilo to, you know, rise up the mountain to a hill station that doesn't yet exist. And then the realities on the ground, which is that, you know, petty um, rivalries often undermine Dalat. There's countless imperatives here. You know, is it going to be a site for soldiers to find uh, rest and reinvigoration or a site for European women to reproduce bourgeois domesticity, um, a site for European children for boarding schools, much like, again, what was going on in, in British colonial holdings? Um, was it going to be a, a site for the Métis, as indeed it becomes? Um, all of these different imperatives end up kind of clashing and are nicely encapsulated when, you know, the mayor of Dalat in the interwar years cracks down on the army for firing on the deer that run through the middle of town. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't have it at once as a site of, you know, leisure, recreation, tourism, military, etc., etc. These many imperatives start to, to clash. Um, and, you know, you tell some of these really fascinating stories about, you know, the attempt to create uh, to offer you know, European produce and you know, they talk about the hunting and the social life. And I'm just wondering ab about the sort of texture of everyday life as it develops from the end of the 19th century uh, uh, over the course of decades. That Can you sort of give us a sense of that? That what what Dalat looks like and what it feels like to be there um, sure, in, during sure. this period? I'm glad you raised the foodstuffs because, um, you know, I, I described a lot as a gigantic experiment in cloning France and nowhere is that truer than in the realm of fruit and vegetables. So you have these early uh, attempts to clone European potato varietals, uh, to introduce European strawberries and raspberries. And this is obviously tied up in, in 
you know, questions of identity and remaining French um, and, and not eating Vietnamese food, right? I have all sorts of uh, doctors warning colonials that they should stop eating foodstuffs out of cans. The great paradox is that they're surrounded by mangoes and, and by, by pineapples and, and you name it and lychee. But um, there is an attachment to eating French that is in many ways enabled by Dalat. Um, so, you know, the, the French scientists that I look at go about um, introducing uh, European sheep varietals, cow varietals, Breton milk cows are brought on board. Um, and to this day, interestingly, uh, Dalat sort of continues this legacy insofar as, you know, it, there's still strawberries growing there. You can eat Dalat strawberry ice cream when you go to Ho Chi Minh City. Um, artichoke teas become the town's specialty. Um, and so in an interesting way, there is a kind of, of hybridity um, that was born of this very non-hybrid project. As for hunting, um, I, I devote many pages to the question of hunting because Dalat quickly emerges as one of the playgrounds for the colonial hunt. And I argue, like um, a variety of others have argued, that, that really hunting is reenacting a kind of right of power and domination. But there's more to it than that. By the, by the interwar years, even by the end of the First World War, there are plans in place to make a, a giant hunting reserve outside of, of Dalat on the Langbyang Plateau. And here you have sort of another gaze towards America and what's going on at Mount Rainier Park and, and uh, other national parks in the U.S. Um, so hunting is, is a huge part of Dalat. It's one of the things that attracted tourists there, along with the promise of relaxation, long hikes, eating French, and uh, you name it. And indeed, uh, American uh, big game hunters find their way to Dalat. Um, uh, it, it's really, in that sense, a global site as well. You talk, Eric, in the, in the book about you know the, certainly this idea of French national cultural identity and this very embodied uh, and sp you know, spatial uh, notion of recreating France in, in Indochina is, is there throughout the book, and, and and it's also about whiteness and about race, and and I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about how race and ethnicity play roles in this story um, and how the French inhabitants, residents, visitors, what the interactions are between uh, these, these figures and, of course, the groups indigenous to Vietnam. Sure. So, I mean, uh, originally this was uh, not just a project of, uh, involving keeping cool, as it were. The goal was very much to um, create a kind of French enclave in the highlands, where it was believed that uh, the Vietnamese, too, were colonizers and foreigners. Uh, this is an ongoing French conception that the highland areas of, of Vietnam had been sort of foreign to Vietnamese, ethnic Vietnamese people, and uh, that the highland minorities that had lived there uh, long before the Vietnamese had arrived would be kind of predisposed to seek out French protection. Um, so that is part of a kind of triangulation of power that's at work at Dalat. Uh, the other thing is, if you look at a map of Indochina, Dalat isn't terribly far from the borders of Laos and Cambodia. Um, and so it's also a kind of glue for the French uh, Indochina Federation as it's taking place. And, and by the 1940s, it will indeed be conceived of as Dalat, as uh, Indochina's federal capital. So there's geostrategic considerations here that are kind of doubled upon racial ones, which is to say, um, Dalat, the kind of replica and enabler of, of France in Indochina would be a white site. Um, so, so imagined it's, it's colonial conceivers. Um, and it would also be a site where the Vietnamese themselves would feel foreign. That was the, that was the kind of colonial dream. Um, and so, you know, be, between that scheme, though, and, and reality, there's a huge gulf because, of course, by the interwar years, Emperor Bao Dai, the enemies or Vietnamese emperor, is going to fall in love with Dalat. He and a large Vietnamese bourgeoisie are going to set up shop there. And even before then, um, the French quickly realize that they're going to need uh, ethnic Vietnamese laborers to create uh, Dalat, literally to build the structures mm -hmm. and to get there. Um, so, yes, I mean, on the one hand, there is this kind of colonial fantasy that at Dalat, uh, whites are going to be able to, as the French say, se reblanchir, or at least the French colonials that I looked at, um, that they're going to sort of rewhiten themselves and reimmerse themselves in the motherland. On the other hand, uh, very quickly, the reality sets in uh, that um, the, the Vietnamese are going to be necessary to help build this project. And indeed, the Vietnamese elites very quickly uh, ask to, partic 
to participate in it. There's, you know, in the 20s and 30s, I find all of these requests from bourgeois Vietnamese families wanting to put their kids into the same boarding schools as the French. And whereas initially it's believed, you know, that you have responses that say, oh, I don't know about this. This is, you know, this is a French preserve. And and whereas this, the, the site is very beneficial for European bodies, it's deleterious to Vietnamese ones. By the 30s, all of that is beginning to change. And uh, the, the Vietnamese elites are indeed using Dalat as their playground as well. What about the uh, relationship of the history of Dalat to the history of uh, Vietnamese nationalism and even French anti-colonialism? I'm wondering about how those stories connect in this in this book. Well, it's an interesting question. There's um, a great deal of, of rhetoric about Dalat in sort of Vietnamese nationalist and Vietnamese communist circles about it being a place for, quote, fattened bourgeois. Um, mm. So a place that was built on not just the backs of Vietnamese labor, but um, that was also built with, you know, monopoly money, with uh, with tax money, with uh, with opium money, and so on and so forth. So there is definitely a sense in some circles um, that Dalat is kind of the playground of the colonizers and should be opposed on those grounds. Um, but it's not quite that simple. It's it's rather messy in some ways. So I have a, a variety of, of Vietnamese witnesses who talk about how, you know, Dalat was actually quite popular amongst the new modern Vietnamese elite, uh, Francophilic elite in some cases, that by the 30s, you know, going to both the beach and the highlands, the mountains and the beach was a sign of, of Vietnamese modernity as well as French modernity. Um, certainly, though, when when uh, Indochina descends into war um, in the late 40s and 1950s, then Dalat becomes a potent symbol. Um, the Viet Minh very quickly targets Dalat in a series of, of ambushes, um, one of them occurring in 1948, and um, makes a point of underscoring that Europeans are not invulnerable and impregnable in this, this sort of bastion that they created for themselves. And what of the, the view of Dalat from the metropole. I mean, what, um, mm -hmm. you know, you talk about people coming from outside, but I'm wondering, is there a, is there also kind of anti-colonial, uh, a place for Dalat in the anti-colonial rhetoric that is metropolitan? Not quite as much, interestingly. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I look at, for instance, the, uh, there's a mission that is sent uh, under the Popular Front to examine Indochina, and it concludes that all sorts of horrible abuses are going on, which of course they are, violence, torture, you name it, um, terribly extractive colonial practices. And yet the inspector looks at Dalat, sees these sort of elite boarding schools and says everything seems to be going fine here. <laughs> uh, so the, I don't think that there is quite as much emphasis on this question on, in the metropole. Um, What's interesting, of course, is that some Europeans coming from the metropole sort of see Dalat as a forlorn and sad replica of home, and they, they find that it doesn't pass muster as a replica of France. Um, so there's a very different gaze upon Dalat, depending on you know whether the, the testimony that you're looking at is that of a Vietnamese person, a French person freshly arrived from the metropole, or somebody who's been in Indochina for many years and who really longs for uh, the metropole and, and thinks that they can recreate it in the highlands. You you've already mentioned Eric this the the significance of the First World War in terms of. Um uh, making Dalat, uh, increasing Dalat's development and making it a more significant site. Um, and I'm just wondering about the other watershed moments, these historical moments uh, that, that are in the book. The, so to begin with, you know, the, the turning point that is the Second World War and the impact that the Second World War has on this site. Yeah, so absolutely. The Second World War is is a critical watershed. Um, the book is sort of constantly in a tension between thematic structure and, and chronological structure. Mm -hmm. I devote a chapter to the Second World War. Um, this is a period when um, the French are sort of rightly on edge. Uh, the rest of, South, you know, colonialism in the rest of Southeast Asia uh, has literally and figuratively been decapitated. Uh, the Japanese have uh, wiped out the British presence in places like Hong Kong and Singapore and Malaysia, the American presence in the Philippines, the Dutch presence in um, what would become Indonesia. And yet the French are left in place because of a, you know, bizarre equation. Um, it's kind of syllogism of uh, a friend of a friend must be a friend uh, because um, 
of course, Vichy was something of a satellite state of Nazi Germany. Nazi Germany and Japan were in alliance. Therefore, uh, the French administration was left alone. Of course, this administration was Vichyite, was led by Governor Jean de Coup. And what you have then is the, the French basically left alone by the Japanese in Indochina until March 9th, 1945, when the Japanese abruptly changed their mind and eradicate the French uh, administration and army in a matter of, of days. Um, so you have this very precarious balance going on in all of Indochina of a Japanese military presence. Most sources don't even call it an occupation. Um, the Japanese are very much using uh, Indochina as a springboard to continue their offensive in the Pacific and in Southeast Asia. Um, and yet you also have, you know, the French still running the show. They're still very much uh, the French police is in charge. Um, the French are still collecting taxes, you name it. And that precarious game is in many ways um, focused on Dalat because uh, the governor general has set up shop there. The Japanese are using Dalat much the same way the French do as a site of convalescence and leisure and have set up a hospital there. And so these incredible tensions of having de facto two sort of overseers, two occupiers are crystallized very nicely in Dalat in this period. Um, one of the the stories within the sites within the site um, that you explore in the book, and as you're kind of moving between the chronological and the thematic throughout, um, is the Dalat Palace Hotel. And I was really intrigued by this story, you know, that you sort of take from its founding in 1922 to you know your own stay there <laughs> um, right. uh, when you were doing your research. And uh, I just wonder if you could say a little bit about how that site within the site. Uh, illustrates the broader themes of the, of the book and this and this bigger story that you're telling. Sure, I mean it's in many ways a kind of colonial white elephant, right? It was set up even before the the city um, became reality. There were plans for this immense resort. Um, it was largely built before the rail line was completed, and so you know these huge blocks had to be brought up by by hand by Vietnamese and Highland minority laborers. Um, and yet, you know, this very luxurious hotel seemingly had a hard time filling its rooms because, of course, um, the category of customers that it, to which it was catered tended to already have villas at Dalat. So you'd have to be disproportionately wealthy and just want to stay a few days. Um, it didn't really work in that sense. And yet, fascinatingly, you know, it was a priority long before, say, a city hall. So the idea of creating this palace hotel in the highlands was really central to the, to the French colonial planning at Dalat. And it's in many ways emblematic, therefore, of, the, of, of this kind of... Um, this dystopian vision that that is Dalat. Um, it becomes a kind of sanctuary for the French during the period I just described, during the, the Japanese occupation. Um, it's decried by some as a symbol of excess. Um, and of course, it's been reinvented today, as you, as you probably saw in my epilogue as well, as this extraordinarily luxurious place that to this day is sort of not really attracting a Vietnamese clientele so much as, you know, the occasional wealthy uh, traveler from Hong Kong or, or Taiwan or elsewhere. So, um you know, through this particular site, through, you know, debates over the size of the orchestra in the time of the Great <laughs> Depression or the quality of the so-called French food and whether it passed muster or not, I'm really able to, to get at some of the, the tensions that underlie a lot. When I was reading about the hotel, I thought about... Um well, reading the book, I thought about two sites. I thought about uh, a brief period of time I spent in Pondicherry doing research, but also um, I thought about these palace hotels in in, in India, particularly in Rajasthan, and and that comparative uh, issue comes up at a, at a number of different points in the book. You know, this kind of competition with the British Raj and the projects and uh, ways in which the British address um, imperial ills, but also you know create these spaces of of uh, recreating Britain in, in, in the empire. And, and what, what is that? What's the function of that comparative frame for the French project here? What, how, how does Britain figure or other imperial powers, for that matter, figure as Dalat is developing and, and different kinds of decisions are being made about its development? Britain was really large. Um, you know, I have a variety of colonial experts, starting with Governor Paul Doumer, saying in the last decade of the 19th century that France owes... Um, 
the sorts of thing for its soldiers and administrators that the British are doing elsewhere, which is to say um, a, 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 an international standard hill station that would uh, allow them to uh, at once be, be safe from disease, reinvigorate and rest on location. So um, it, it's really, you know, you can't overstate the importance of the British example here. What's ironic about Dalat, though, is that they're copying, the French are copying this British logic, which is a logic many ways uh, from you know the 1830s when when Shimla was still nascent they're doing so in the fin de siècle and of course Ronald Ross comes up with the the breakthrough of of the malaria uh, mosquito vector in 1898 mm-hmm. the very year that Dalat is created so what I find interesting is that in many ways this rationale this kind of the logic of avoiding the heat um, to avoid disease is faulty the very year that Dalat is created and yet um, French scientists, French leisure seekers cling to the climatic paragon par- paradigm. Sorry, which is, I suppose, not all that surprising. Um, you know, scientific theories take a while to trickle down, but it is amazing to me the way that Dalat is still referred to through a climatic lens well into the 1950s. Um, another aspect of the book that I found really fascinating, Eric, is the you know the way that gender sort of plays a role throughout the story. In some ways, it seems like Dalat begins as this very male territory, um, and then some right. of the things that you're talking about in terms of hunting and uh, colonial violence um, seem sort of very focused on, you know, a certain type of colonial masculinity um, and health and, and bodies. But then, of course, as the story continues, these, you mentioned already this idea of the sort of role that women should play and children and the development of a kind of Métis population. Um, and I'm just wondering about about that story, how how women come into the picture here and 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 the way that gender figures throughout. Well, we know from a, a variety of historians that, um, you know, Indochina, as far as settler society was concerned, was disproportionately male until about the turn of the century. Um, you know, different ratios are brought up, something like six to one, eight to one. It kind of varies. But um, and, and that this we know was also used by, you know, colonial moralists to explain the kind of debauchery that they saw at work in the colonies. These colonial men arriving, leaving their families behind and ending up with Vietnamese mistresses whom they called the Kung Gai. Um, and so in many ways, you know, colonial, colonial moralists um, were quick to chastise this imbalance um, and, and uh, you know, explain a great deal through that imbalance. Dalat, it was hoped by, by its colonial conceivers, would help remedy this from the outset by allowing European women to live safely in the colony. They who were considered the most fragile in their constitutions would be the first to benefit from, uh, from this colonial safe site. And, of course, part of the story I'm talking, then, uh, talking about then is, is the ways in which Groups like like Vietnamese, uh, bourgeois Vietnamese, um, elite European women are going to break the initial conception of Dalat. So I show, for instance, in the hunting sections, how Gabrielle Vassal takes this essentially masculine occupation and claims it as her own. Mm-hmm. She is the she is the British uh, wife of. Uh, Dr. Uh, Joseph Vassal, who is one of the, the creators of the Hill Station and the, the head doctors behind the place. Um, and, you know, as a British woman trained in the Raj, she uh, immediately asks for a gun during the colonial hunt to slay one of the tigers that is pestering villagers and, and lurking around a lot. And she's told initially that she can't, um, <laughs> that that's not the proper, you know, gender distribution in, in a French colony, that that may fly in India, but it won't fly in Indochina. But of course, since nobody can shoot the darn uh, tiger um, on something like the third attempt she really insists is given a rifle and you know if you read her account you can sort of deduce that she's the one who finally um, kills the beast um, so metaphorically this is really sort of the entry of um, uh, of women into the site and and the changing of, of roles around the turn of the century um, and Dalat really becomes the site where a great many European women set up shop um, they, you know, under quite extraordinary circumstances in the 1940s, uh, they really hold down the place while European men are are in the lowlands and in the deltas. So it is a kind of fascinating place because it's also a site where, as you just suggested, um, the Métis are brought. Now, Frank, Eurasians, if you prefer, um, were imagined to be uh, 
you know, sort of ideal for Dalat on a number of levels. One of the theories here elaborated by the French was that, you know, because Eurasian identity was perceived as uh, somehow unstable, Dalat would help tilt them towards their more European side and away from their Vietnamese side. And this would be done through, you know, Dalat's milk farms, through its cheeses, through its strawberries, you name it. Um, and of course, we have the testimony of a variety of Eurasians who say that, you know, Dalat was culturally alienating and it was kind of a bridge between their experience in Vietnam and their subsequent experience back home in France. So, you know, Dalat was a, a powerful agent, if you will, of, of identity as, as people felt it exerted upon themselves. It's so interesting how this site be, is sort of a prism for all of these different things going on in the in the colonial context. And the other thing that you talk about is the role of religion, this idea of a divine Dalat, and and uh, you know how and why did Dalat become a center for for Catholic worship, and what's the role that religion plays in this story? Well, so that's one of the, the dimensions of Dalat that I haven't had a chance to talk about. So thanks for asking the question. Um, yes, absolutely. Um, missionaries very quickly uh, find an interest in Dalat, Catholic missionaries uh, first, and then later Protestant missionaries as well. Um, but so too, by the way, do other religions. Kaudai in particular is, is becomes very strong in Dalat um, by the 1930s and 1940s. Um, this is obviously a, a different project altogether. Um, you know, it's not the same as, as the as the administrative project or the medical project that I've talked about or the military project that I've talked about. And there was a kind of tension for some of the early missionaries at Dalat. The question was, you know, would they be mistaken for colonials just seeking the good life of, of uh, leisure at Dalat by going there? And then within these internal debates, I sort of teased out other voices saying, well, no, wait a second. Um, we missionaries can do God's work at Dalat, we can convert highland minority groups, and then very quickly, of course, um, Vietnam, ethnic Vietnamese were going to Dalat as well, and so there was an emphasis on Vietnamese Catholics there. So yes, rather rapidly, um, right after the genesis of Dalat, uh, missionaries took an interest in the place, and countless orders uh, had villas there, much the same way, incidentally, as, as you know, banks and other establishments would set up um, summer furlough sites and villas at Dalat where their personnel would rotate. So too did missionaries have um, places where they could go and uh, and rest, but also evangelize very quickly as well. Uh, Catholic schools were set up there. Um, and, you know, it became, Dalat became really Indochina's prime educational center per capita um, by the interwar years. So um, the Couvent des Oiseaux, which, whose Maison Mère was in Paris, set up a, a branch in Dalat, which um, then attracted the uh, daughters of the royal family of Baudai. Um, so, yeah, you can see how missionaries are also seizing onto some of Dalat's dimensions that I discussed earlier, but they're also making Dalat their own in some very interesting ways. Would you say, Eric, that um, there's a, a, a tension between all of these things that are happening in this place, that there's sort of a fight over what the site should be or... Well, some of it's rather peaceful coexistence, um, but, you know, there's also a, a finite amount of space. So the, the military is, you know, kindly told at one point that it should go towards the suburbs because there just isn't enough room for them. And absolutely, you know, there's tensions between between Catholic missionaries and the secular authorities on occasion. Um, there is, for instance, also a tension between the desire to have it, to have Dalat emerge as a major tourist site and the reality that endangered species are being devastated around mm -hmm. Dalat. So, so there's a series of these tensions, um, and certainly you see this progressing and accentuating as Dalat's role and importance grow in the late 40s and early 50s to become de facto uh, Indochina's federal capital. Mm -hmm. And you see how in particular, um, you know, the Viet Minh sees this as a threat, that Dalat, you know, the colonial bastion, is being imagined now as an all-French federal capital to wrestle power away from ethnic Vietnamese A and B, in particular Vietnamese communists. So yes, there are definitely tensions and Dalat is being instrumentalized and used as well in a variety of ways. So the next uh, major 
watershed, and there are lots of turning points and important historical moments in the book, certainly, but the, the next major one that, that you take on is, of course, the French defeat and, and what happens after 1954, and the, the sort of final part of the book looks at post-colonial Dalat. So what happened? What what are the wars that came after? What happened in and to Dalat in this period after 1954? And how did the meanings of the site shift and uh, on the ground and, and even more globally? Well, part of the story is one of continuity, which is to say that surprisingly, even at the height of the first Indochina War, or as it's called in Vietnam, the first the French War, rather, um, there are tourists coming to Dalat. Um, now, by 48, they're coming to Dalat in armed convoys, so one wonders how relaxing an experience it was. Um, but nevertheless, Dalat was sort of imagined as a kind of haven that hadn't yet descended in, into the worst of the violence. Um, and indeed, Dalat's tourist numbers are up continuously through the 50s. And to some extent, you can argue in the Diem years, Dalat is still, you know, the quintessential resort. And, and so there's a story of continuity there that carries through to the present, where Dalat is still uh, a major site of leisure and indeed has become uh, Vietnam's unofficial honeymoon capital today. Right. Um, but there's also major breaks, um, and I discuss at some length the 1951 massacre, which takes place just outside the Dalat airfield, mm-hmm. um, which really is is the kind of spiraling out of control of cycles of revenge uh, in and around Dalat. Um, you have a Métis police officer who is murdered. He was renowned for his use of torture. He's murdered by the Viet Minh, and a tragedy ensues when a number of hostages are executed in cold blood. Um, and, and so here you have sort of the war coming to Dalat in all of its horror. What I found particularly interesting about this episode was that it was mediated in France, but also in Indochina through the lens of the Second World War, which is to say that here, indeed, you have, to answer your earlier question, uh, dissident voices back home, communist newspapers like L'Humanité, saying mm-hmm. that the tragedy of Dalat is really no different from what the Nazis did to us in World War II. Um, so the war, of course, does come to Dalat. Um, but interestingly, you know, there's a, this kind of, of continuity in the, the romantic dimension of Dalat. It's still seen as a, as a place where couples go, as, a, as an amorous site. Um, and that continues to this day. And, and Dalat's been reinvented today in many ways as a kitsch site. But what's fascinating to me is that in, in sort of communist post-colonial Vietnam, this quintessentially colonial site has taken on a new life and uh, is, is kind of imagined as, as Vietnam, Switzerland. So what about that period in between the, the, the French War and, you know, I want to come back to this issue of the contemporary meanings of the lot, but what, what about that period of, well, the American War and, the, and that, that period of the, you know, 1950s, 60s, 70s? I know that you talk in the book about some of the challenges with respect to researching mm-hmm. that period and accessing information about what happens in the lot, but what were you able to find about, about that? Well, First of all, I'm a French colonial historian, and I have practically no Vietnamese at all. So looking at the the, the post-colonial archives was intensely problematic. Not only are they very, very notoriously hard to access, mm-hmm. but even if I had, I would have needed a translator to work through all of that. And I already had translators working on sort of, you know, Vietnamese appropriations of Dalat, Vietnamese uses of Dalat. So uh, there was only so much I could do. Sure. Um, but beyond that, yes, um, I do look at some sort of echoes of what, what I've been talking about in the in the American War, which is to say that Dalat is once again at the center of things during the Tet Offensive, um, that it is taken by the Viet Minh, recaptured some days later after very intense fighting um, by by South Vietnam. Um, and that it's very much at the center of recriminations, once again, as a kind of, you know, capitalist site this time, uh, rather than a colonial site. I, I want to come back to this issue of, you know, what Dalat means today and some things that you talk about in the epilogue. I mean, I was really struck by this sort of this idea of kitsch and this valley of love and these Dalat cowboys. And, <laughs> you know, you talk about this idea of Indo-chic and Dalat style And I, I really want to hear more about that. And this, frankly, weird <laughs> site uh, that is this meeting place of, you know, uh, honeymooning Vietnamese and French tourists and others, other tourists, I imagine that, you know, what role does nostalgia for the colonial past play in all of this? And, you know, what does it mean today, this, this, this site that continues to exist? 
Well, it's a fascinating set of questions. And, and I first, you know, one of the ways I stumbled upon this was I, I, I was struck at how many Vietnamese Canadians, Vietnamese Americans, Vietnamese Australians, Franco-Vietnamese talk about um, Dalat in wistful terms, really in many ways no different from the sorts of language that the French deployed, uh, you know, concerning Dalat in the 1950s. There's to this day websites that bring together former students from the Lycée Yersine, uh, former students from the Couvent des Oiseaux. And this is one of the few places where, you know, there's not that much of a rupture between the kinds of dialogue that you have on those websites and the kind of dialogue that you have of post-colonial students at these same schools. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, there's a series of fascinating questions here, some of which I can answer and others I frankly cannot. But the fact is that that there is a kind of enduring fascination for Dalat amongst expat circles, certainly, but even more intensely um, for a new generation of, of Vietnamese who I'm sure aren't so much, you know, dancing on the ruins of, of empire at Dalat as they are imagining a kind of, you know, vaguely romantic aura around the place. Um, and, you know, this is something that the French had cultivated around the artificial lakes that they created. The French had been really fascinated by the pine trees around a lot. This is one of the things that drew them to the place in the first place. And and today one hears about, you know, the, the beautiful and delicious pines around a lot. So in a very bizarre and, and ironic way, um, Dr. Alexandre Yersin's dream of recreating Switzerland and Indochina is something that continues to fascinate to this day. Um, so one sees it around the artificial lakes with these bizarre cowboy rides that you were talking about. One sees it as well around the waterfalls that draw countless scores of, of honeymooners. One sees it in the hotels that are overbooked every weekend with, you know, couples trying to get away from the, from the capital um, or from, from the economic capital that is Ho Chi Minh City. Um, and a lot of the, the language about climate is, is still being used, right? Vietnamese getting away from the deltas to, um, to, to enjoy the fresh air of Dalat today. Now, what's bizarre is that um, in many ways, Dalat has escaped the kind of tour group, Western tour groups that you would imagine descending upon the place. They tend to go to places like Halong Bay or the Metropole Hotel. But um, because it was conceived as a clone of France, a lot of tourists don't find a particular interest in going to see a clone of, you know, Arcachon in Indochina. <laughs> so it's it's kind of off the beaten path as far as, as Western tourist groups are concerned, although there are specialty tours bringing together um, former students, as I said. Um, the, the percentage of, of French Indo-Chinese people born at Dalat is very high because it was envisioned as as a kind of nursery of French Indochina. So a lot of people, French people uh, from Indochina were born at Dalat or, or spent a lot of their childhood there and have a great deal of nostalgia for the place. I'm wondering, you know, what there is this, you mentioned Endochine, the film Endochine uh, a little bit earlier. And, I, you know, there does seem to me, and this is just, you know, someone who works on T- completely different things, but there does seem to be this way in which um, Andochine can be talked about in a way that Algeria just cannot be talked about. And I'm just wondering, you know, this project and the work that you've done here, how does it fit into that bigger, and com- to come back to this bigger idea of, you know, how reflections and interpretations of French empire, uh, the politics of those of those things today, how does the story of Dalat and the story of Indochina fit in, in relationship to Algeria or other sites, um, mm. and some of the kind of contemporary issues that France faces as a post-colonial uh, nation? Well, I don't know that Dalat's at the center of that particular discussion, um, but there's no doubt that, you know, the, the kind of problematic side of the film Andochine, that it's imbued, uh, suffused with the kind of colonial nostalgia that the story is told through the eyes and through the mouth of Eliane, the main female character who very much embodies France in the movie. Those sorts of things you can find everywhere at Dalat. Mm-hmm. And, and this isn't so much my analysis as that of, of people like Pane van Norender who, mm-hmm. who coined the term Andochique. Um, and, and you see this at work everywhere at Dalat, you know, you go to the websites of the, the Dalat Palace Hotel and you'll see an old de chevaux in front of the hotel, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is a kind of shorthand for the colonial era. 
or another website that mentions that there's, you know, countless Degas and Chagas and, and so on and, and Monet's and Manet's within the Dalit Palace Hotel. Of course, these turn out to be posters once you arrive there. But again, it's a shorthand to something French. Um, and what's interesting is the way that this is instrumentalized, not so much by the French in this instance, as by, you know, Vietnamese marketing people, the Dalat Tourist Board, that is really mm. playing upon this kind of stuff. And which, you know, in some ways would have made Yersin and Dumer blush in some of their, <laughs> their romantic talk of, of Dalat's birth as, you know, I've, I've got a passage here quoting um, um, the Vietnamese Tourist Board or whatever, talking about how Governor Dumer was the the midwife who gave birth to Dalat. Uh, I'm right. not even sure the triumphalist colonial narratives would have used that kind of language. So Dalat, in many ways, is evocative of this kind of colonial nostalgia. But I'm not sure that it's it's safe. To, you know, I agree with what you said that that. Indochina remains in many ways something that's easier to talk about in France than Algeria. Nevertheless, um, you know, it's not, it's not completely une histoire apaisée either. No. And the Dalat airfield massacre, well, you know, sur- the survivor of that, the 1951 massacre I talk about is still alive. Um, there are still wounds there. And certainly as my PhD student Katie Edwards has shown, um, you know, in veteran circles in France, uh, if you talk about Vietnam, you run the risk of, of being answered with anti-communist diatribes. Um, the first Indochina war is still seen through very different lenses in France, depending on who you talk to. You know, was it, mm-hmm. was it a war against communism? Was it a war to protect Laos? Was it a war against national liberation movements? I think it's rather hard to find a single answer to that in France today. Obviously, in Vietnam, it's a different story. Sure. Well, Eric, I've taken up a lot of your time, so I'd like to ask you one last question, which is, what are you working on now? Oh, thanks, Roxanne. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Well, um, I've moved, I've changed gears completely um, once again, and I'm, I'm finishing a book on, on free French Africa. So on um, the very first colonies to rally General de Gaulle in the summer of 1940, in particular, the ones in Africa that you know provided both men and resources for the free French cause. So I'm really trying to look at the early French resistance from without. And in many ways, I'm positing that the first resistor, the resistor of the first hour, or at least the, the prototypical one, wasn't some white man in Savoie with a beret, <laughs> rather a, um, a forced conscript from Ubangui, Chari, or Gabon, or Chad. So I'm looking at, at the genesis of free France in the colonies. Well, it sounds like an exciting project, and I hope you'll come back and speak to me about it when it's, when it's out in, in new book form. Well, thanks again, Roxanne. Thank you so much for joining us uh, and, uh, and for writing the book. You've been listening to New Books in French Studies. Thanks so much for tuning in, and I hope you'll join us again next time. <laughs>